Prince Nigel had tried to reassure the folk of Genin Vale. He had reminded them that the king's men did not plunder and pillage in their own lands. Young Kelson forbade it, as had his father and Nigel's brother, the late King Brian. Nor was Duke Alaric a threat to the peace of the Eleven Kingdoms, even if the archbishops had ruled otherwise. The belief that the Dorini as a race were evil was superstitious nonsense. Brian himself, though not Dorini, had trusted Morgan with his life time and again, had esteemed the Dorini lord so much that he had created him king's champion over the protests of his royal council. There was no shred of evidence that Morgan had ever betrayed that trust, then or now. But the Vale folk wouldn't listen. The revelation of Kelson's own half-Durini ancestry at his coronation last fall, though unknown even to Kelson before that day, had opened the door of distrust for the royal Haldane line, a distrust which had not been eased by the young king's dogged support of the heretic Duke Alaric and his Durini priest cousin, Duncan MacLean. Even now, it was rumored that the king still protected Duke Alaric and MacLean, that the king himself had been excommunicated as a result, that he and the hated Duke Alaric and a host of other Dorini warriors planned to march on Corrath and break the back of the anti-Dorini movement by destroying Loris and Corrigan and the beloved Warren. Why, Warren himself had predicted it. So the local partisans had led Nigel's troops the long way around Genin Vale, luring them with the promise of ample water and grazing for the royal armies which would follow. In the fields, green with half-ripe wheat and oats, the rebels had fallen on the troops in ambush, cutting a swath of death and destruction through the surprised royalist ranks. By the time the king's men could disengage and retreat with their wounded, more than a score of knights, rebels, and warhorses lay dead or dying, the lion banners stained and trampled amid the ripening grain. Royston froze, with his hand on the hilt of his dagger for just an instant, then scuttled past a still body and continued along the narrow cartway toward home. He was only ten, and small for his age at that, but this fact had not prevented him from doing his share of the plundering this afternoon. The leather satchel slung over his shoulder bulged with food and bits of harness, and such other light accoutrements as he had been able to gather from the fallen enemy. Even the finely etched dagger and sheath thrust through his rude rope belt had been taken from the saddle of a dead warhorse. Nor was he squeamish about picking over dead bodies, at least not in daylight. Scavenging was a way of life for peasant folk in time of war, and now that the peasants were in revolt against their duke, indeed, against even their king, it was an urgent necessity as well. The peasants' weapons were few and crude, mostly pikes and scythes and clubs, or an occasional dagger or sword gleaned from just such an activity as Royston now pursued. Fallen soldiers of the enemy could provide more sophisticated weaponry, fighting harness, helmets, even gold and silver coinage on occasion. The possibilities were unlimited. And here, where the retreating enemy had picked up their wounded and the rebels had cared for their own, there were only dead men to worry about. Even so young a boy as Royston wasn't afraid of dead men. Still, Royston kept a watchful eye as he walked, quickening his pace to make a wide detour around another stiffening corpse. He wasn't timid in the least, such wasn't the way of the country-bred folk of Corwin, but there was always the very real possibility 
that he might come upon a dead enemy who wasn't really dead, and that he didn't like to think about. As though in answer to his growing mood, a wolf howled much closer than before, and Royston shivered as he headed for the center of the cartway again, beginning to fancy that he could see movement in every bush, every ghostly tree stump. Even if he needn't fear the dead, there would be more dangerous four-legged predators prowling the fields once night fell. These he had no desire to meet. Suddenly, a movement caught his eye, ahead and to the left of the path. Hand tightening on his weapon, he dropped to a crouch and let his other hand fumble among the rocks in the roadway until it could close on a fist-sized stone. He had held his breath as he dropped to the ground, and his voice was hoarse and quavering as he craned his neck to peer into the bushes. Who's there? he croaked. Say who you be, or I'll come ne closer. There was a second rustling in the bushes, a moan, and then a weak voice. Water. Please, someone.